0: My guest today is Professor Vinith Arora, who's Professor of Medicine and Dean of Medical Education at the University of Chicago. One of her research interests is the use of social media to improve the workplace learning in teaching hospitals on a variety of topics. Welcome, Vineet.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with uh, one of your very recent papers, a coordinated strategy to develop and distribute infographics addressing COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy and misinformation. So this is really a topical (laughs) subject. Um, You said that here visual communication strategies are becoming increasingly prevalent for conveying information to health professionals as well as to the general public. The potential of social media for rapid knowledge dissemination using infographics was recognised early in the COVID-19 pandemic uh, by health professionals. So, so I've been struggling with this a little bit. We need, you know, um, there's a lot of noise out there. Um, yeah. I'm creating some noise myself <laughs> here this podcast. I'm um, definitely
1: a noise maker. So yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, obviously, there's a sort of uncertainty. You know, that's something that we have to really think about. But then, um, you know, I, I typically start off expressing my opinion by saying I don't know anything about it. Uh, but I know that in the podcast and videocast universe, college dropouts, um, people who have no knowledge of medicine seem to have a lot of very strong opinions. Yeah. And if millions of people listen to that, that's problematic, isn't it?
1: It is. And I think it's all about expertise. And, um, you know, social media has definitely, you know, what's been described as level the playing field. And I'm an early adopter of social media, but I'm not its biggest fan. So, um, you know, as an early adopter of Twitter, you know, early Twitter is very different than it was. it is now. You know, early Twitter was this sort of place where you went to learn about people and it had a very innovator vibe you know it was like you're learning about how this new tool you want to connect with people you're connecting with people in a new way um and the twitter right now is seems a little bit more of a cesspool and you've got to kind of find your niche of people and your topics that you're interested in Um, especially with covid and the spread of disinformation and so I got interested in this um, actually pre-COVID. I got interested in, um, you know, as somebody who specializes in learning, especially in hospitals, I got interested in the concept of a medical urban legend, like myths that the residents would spread um, about a variety of things, including things like costs of care, but also patients too. As somebody who had studied, um, you know, perceptions of healthcare costs, you know, it's a perfect example of something where people are very concerned about healthcare costs, it affects them, but it's very ambigu- ambiguous. There's a lot of ambiguity around healthcare costs. How do you calculate them, et cetera? So it spreads, it's, it's prone to misinformation because um, it actually is is very important and it's very ambiguous. And so that's also, if you take that model, it's sort of the law of rumor, um, a famous law of rumor by Alport, you can apply it to COVID. And it's the same thing, like people really care about, you know, um, whether, you know, the mitigation strategies and, you know, the pandemic and whether we're open or closed and they care about their kids. And so then, and the science is ambiguous, right? It's always changing, you know, do we mask, do we not mask, do, you know, um, and as a result, um, that leads to a lot of misinformation. And there's misinformation, which is like, so then I started looking at, well, what types of misinformation are there? And it turns out there's taxonomy of misinformation that you can think about that affect the doctor patient relationship or the clinician patient relationship, if you will. And some of that is like unintentional misinformation, you know, like um, guidelines change, you know? And so if you went to the doctor and they um, prescribed a medicine for your heart disease, you know, it could be that the guideline has changed and that doctor just is out of date and they haven't gotten They haven't kept up to date with the newest guideline, you know, and that's why we have things like certification and tests and stuff that doctors take. Now, um, at the same time, you know, the, um, the other uh, thing that might happen is that there could be intentional spread of misinformation that becomes disinformation. And I think the worry about the COVID pandemic is we're seeing a lot more disinformation, you know, um, and we have an increasing polarization in our, in our um, you know, in our country that has really led to this, you know, disinformation. And so I, I wanted to talk about it with you because obviously, you know, you run a podcast around science, you know, and making sense of scientific issues. And um, to me, this is one of the most important issues that we have, which is the pandemic, will eventually, you know, end and we will be left with some, you know, endemic, you know, form of, of coronavirus. How that happens and the way in which that happens is subject to a big great debate right now. But what we will be left with is, is going to be that infodemic, the spread of disinformation, um, particularly around things that have very strong evidence. And so um, even though, you um, you know, I mean, you know, millions of people have been given the COVID vaccine, right? But there's still a lot of disinformation about it. Um, similarly, that disinformation is now bleeding over into other vaccines, you know? And so um, so these are all things that, that we should be very concerned about, if you will.
0: Yeah, so, you know, I spent my career on helping um, senior decision makers, C-level execs, make decisions in the presence of uncertainty, Mm-hmm. so making decisions in the presence of uncertainty is a complex thing you know it is mm-hmm. uh, it is not what we teach in business schools actually <laughs> uh, no. we, don't have, we don't have cash flows we don't mm-hmm. have net present value all the all the stuff that um, economists and uh, finance people understand we don't really have that what we have is uncertainty So, mm-hmm. so how do we make decisions in the presence of uncertainty and you know we have a, a set of heuristics methodologies yeah, yeah.
1: for that yeah no, that's a great question so yeah. i I've, I've, I've studied this because um medical uncertainty is um you know contributes to medical error and so prior to covid i did a lot of patient safety and quality research which is why i take a huge interest in things like you know hospitals filling up and sort of you know when you know when we can't provide the care that we we need to you know it affects patients and so um So medical decision making, you know, human brains, um, doctors, brains, any brains uh, like to act to eliminate uncertainty. We do not like uncertainty. And this is a great example is like when you're driving your car and you maybe somebody told you the directions, you know, and you didn't write them down like you should have and you're just going by your memory. But it had been a while since you've done this and then you hit the fork in the road And your brain will not usually pause to say, gosh, I really don't know which way to go. You're probably going to veer one way or the other because Mm -hmm. you're going to be like, well, you know, know, one, you have 50% chance of getting it right. But the other thing is your brain will trick you to being like, you know, it's probably this way, right? Like you'll probably reassure yourself that it's that way. And so similarly, when we look at things like um, medical error and those heuristics, a lot of those heuristics are at play such that they act, the same acts to reduce uncertainty can then actually lead to an error, you know? And um, and so I think this is important because there is a cognitive psychology element around mm-hmm. why misinformation works. And here's a great example, which is that um, in some prior studies that we've done, looking at handoff communication, uh, when doctors were changing shifts and like nurses change shifts, you know, every day in the hospital. Um, When, you know, when you ask people, well, you know, what do you remember about that exchange that you just had to remember about the important thing about that patient? What's the most important thing about that patient? It turns out that in the study that we did, Um, you know, 80% of the time, you know, or, uh, you know, people had difficulty, you know, 60 to 80% of the time people had difficulty remembering what the most important piece of information was. And then for the rationale, they also couldn't, you know, couldn't provide the right rationale. And in some cases they provided contradictory rationale, meaning that the answer was most important thing was call the primary care physician. So maybe Mm -hmm. they got that right. But I was like, why? Why? And then the intern would say, because the patient is going home. And in fact, what they were told was call the primary care physician to tell them the patient was going to stay. And so you might wonder, how could a doctor, you know, somebody with that much training, and this is a supervised handoff, like, you know, the attending was there, they had a lot of change of information, they, they had plenty of, they have tools to write, you know, they had all sorts of technology at their disposal. How could that exchange gets so fouled up you know Hmm. and a lot of it again is that cognitive you know psychology of we don't like dealing with the you know with the uncertainty so we overwrite our brain our brain overwrites it and replaces it with something that looks similar and in some cases that similarity is so different and it's opposite and so I use that to kind of highlight this example because why does misinformation cling you know well it clings because you know when you've got that ambiguity and you've got that uncertainty you you want to reduce the amount of uncertainty in your environment everybody wants to do that especially right now and so you're going to just gravitate and cling to the thing that that is going to fill that and make sense to you and unfortunately because science sometimes requires a lot of explanation and a lot of incremental explanation. Sometimes it's easier to just believe a lie, you know, because it's simple and you can, you can, you can end up believing, oh, well, you know, if there was a, you know, uh, you, could, you could end up easily believing something that does not have any bearing around the COVID vaccine, around masking, and, and that's unintentional. I mean, there's also the intentional spread. The intentional spread of the disinformation is the problem in the first place. But the challenge is that people's brains are adopting those and then, then they're kind of, you know, sticking and then they're spreading it. And so then all of a sudden you believe it. And so that's really, really a challenge
0: yeah so so there's a sort of a psychological neuroscience issue here uh processing uncertainty is cognitively costly yeah so so we try to reduce that
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh the only cohort of people i know who are certain about everything are politicians Um, (laughs) they they, they're absolutely certain (laughs) uh, about you know policy choices and everything that they do Every scientist that I know is very uncertain uh, mm-hmm. about you know, I mean there's some data here, there's some data there, you know I could go this way or that way. Um, for general public, that's very cognitively costly proposition. So, so you see, you go in and you say x is equal to y. It's completely untrue, but I'm going to assert x equal to y. If there's no cognitive cost involved. I just say, yeah, that sounds right. Well, uh, yeah. and I want to...
1: it's, it's very unfortunate, you know, and we've, um, I would say that the way we've trained scientists and medical professionals is to be very cautious and to not overstate things, right, and to use the words may and associate right I mean these are the scientific method you know it's not causal right so you you're very very deliberate with your word of choice when you publish a scientific paper for example and unfortunately when that goes to the media or to the lay public you know that that language you know doesn't really hold traction you know it's like May be associated with, you know, it's like not going to really get the headline and the clickbait. And so that's when the media will potentially rewrite that headline to say, you know, did you know that coffee drinkers, you know, uh, live longer, right? And so, um, and of course, if you look at the study, it's not, you know, it's not designed to to do that. And so, so it is a real challenge, which is on both sides, we have to, we need training, we need training on the scientific establishment side on how to communicate with empathy and reach people where they're at about the science. And then we also need to augment our basic science education in our country i mean i'm very very concerned about stem education in our country that we would have pockets in our country where people are this susceptible to you know completely outlandish you know um disinformation that would be spread by for example politicians and this and that that just like makes no sense um and And that's when you really do worry, have we failed as a society to um, provide those um, really important preventive measures and buffers against such misinformation? Um, And so I think it's twofold. You know, we we can train scientists and medical professionals, but that's only gonna get us half the way there. We also have to really, um invest in scientific education at the K through 12 level so that people have a greater understanding of basic principles um around around science.
0: Yeah, so you know I, I'm struggling with this a little bit Vinit. So you know we we have senators who graduated from Stanford um, and I suppose Stanford is a good school. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know And say things that are totally against science, totally against, you know, common sense, right? So so I'm not sure if education is the issue, that there's an incentive problem in society. So we have podcasters, millions of people listen to them.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of dark money, you know, there is a lot of, there's money here, you know, and I think people don't realize that Um, You can create a business, you can self fund yourself spreading disinformation and growing your platform to do that. And there are also business interests, right? I mean, there's very, very, um, you know, there's very important conflicts of interest that people have that relate to um, preventing public health from taking hold. And this is not new. This is certainly not new. Um, the climate science industry has been on the forefront of this for years, right? Um, I mean, because, you know, at the at the root of, of the issue with climate science is really, you know, what are our emissions and how are we going to control carbon, you know, our carbon emissions? And then you can think about entire industries and swaths of people with a lot of money and a lot of conflict and a lot of stake to basically spread the myth that climate change is a hoax so that we continue our you know dependence on doing those same old practices that would lead to carbon emissions so so now you can apply that model to the pandemic right you can apply that model to well of course there are consequences for public health interventions and, you know, we should be debating them and really looking at them very closely. But there are also conflicts of interest um, that need to be factored in. And so I think those are really, really important points.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a complex set of conflicts of interest. I used to work for a large pharmaceutical company. And mRNA vaccines yeah. um, is a big business now
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, for, for pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. and. Um, you know, increasingly we are finding that mRNA vaccine platforms are not going to be sufficiently robust to take care of the pandemic. And so, I mean, we have sort of an economic um, conflict issue. Uh, we have pharmaceutical companies, we have yeah. government
1: right. agents. Well, and, and that's what's prolonging the pandemic, right? Because if we had, we didn't really have people acting in this way, we would have more sharing of vaccines across borders. We would create more global vaccine equity that would then allow us to, to get to where we need to be. And that's why it's so refreshing to see people like Dr. Peter Hotez and others really um, you know, enter the market with, um, with vaccine platforms that are actually more familiar to people and also that are coming without the um, financial burden or the, you know, the conflict, if you will, and, you know, are really being um, directed to the groups that need the most. Um, I think that a lot of that, I think that there are things on both sides that have have gone into diminished trust of the American people, um, but really of the world. I mean, you know, why, why should people trust us? You know, uh, we have not been playing by good rules. And so, um, so I do think that, unfortunately we're we're in an incredibly polarized environment um and how we got here you know it's like worth this discussing how we got here you know partly how we got here was social media right yeah. um and so you know when people, We've lost those trusted sources of news, like those growing up, I had the three anchors on TV, three channels, you know, everybody's kind of had their similar take on the same news. But it would be very hard to kind of put in fake news, you know, because, you know, people kind of knew the truth and, and not the truth, whereas now people to choose your own adventure and what you believe. And so you're going to look for the news that you believe and no, more and more importantly than that, your social media platform is going to give you news that you're apt to believe because they want you to get addicted, right? And so um and so that's what's really challenging, right? Is that um I find uh you know when I talk about social media, I don't talk about it as a cure, you know. I say the reason to be there is because everyone else is there and we've got to enter We've got to use the platform. Clinicians, health professionals, scientists should learn to use the platform to spread good information and also spread information in a way that really elevates that conversation, if you will.
0: Yeah, so, so I wanted to push on this a little bit, Vinit. So um, the, the the problem with information is that information is going to change. So in science, we are very familiar with information changing. Yeah. Um, we can reject or accept a hypothesis and next day we can, you know, take in new information and redo that. The public is not really familiar with that concept, right? So so, so I want to go into, you know, so the Pritzker University of Chicago medical school students take on misinformation through infographics, yeah. Employed to build trust in COVID-19 vaccines. I struggled with this little bit because for a general public um x is always equal to y it, it's you know it, it doesn't say x could be y prime or y double prime ever <laughs> you know that that seems like a like an unacceptable outcome so how yeah, well,
1: you so that? i would so here's what i would say which is that making sense of the science is is a science, you know. Um, So there is a whole field around scientific communication that we should not ignore. And this is really critical for policy agencies like the CDC and others to factor in that know that they're going to need to pivot and that frequent pivots aren't going to need to be made. And even, you know, in my role as dean, you know, I'm often telling the students, you know, I you know, it's like the weatherman, right? Like with X percent certainty, you can predict there's going to snow, but you might not know how much it's going to snow is going to be there and how many hours it's going to snow. We accept that level of uncertainty from our weathermen. You're right. You know, that's a science, meteorologic science. We accept the fact that maybe it says it's going to rain tomorrow, but then tomorrow it's not, you know. Um, so I would want to push back and say, there are areas where we accept in science that there is high degrees of uncertainty. And we've all learned to use our phone and provide the good source. Like even my friend was like, oh, I like WGN. That's my weather app. And I was like, well, I use weather channel. You know, so we have all, we all have sifted out like the, our trusted source. And we all kind of know that, okay, don't just use one source. You might have to triangulate. And at the end of the day, you might have to go outside and be like, yes, it's snowing Okay, put <laughs> on my snow boots. Right Right, um, because the truth is going to trump whatever you've been told, right? right? So we have an example there of of where the forecast changes daily, and we change with it. You know, daily we change with it every day. I'm like, okay, how do I dress my daughter? How do I, I tell her to wear? You know, do I put the gloves on or not? You know, um, and and so I think that this whole idea of um, that we we put our flag in the sand and say, you know, we're going to be locked down forever. You know, nobody is saying that, right? That's that's a false dichotomy. And so what we really need to do is really have communicators highlight that there is going to be change, but that people need to trust those communicators. The challenge right now is that people lack trust. So, and there's two types of groups, you know, there's this group that's, recalcitrant because they've been poisoned by disinformation and they're not going to come your way. That's not the group I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people in the middle. They're like fence sitters and they're basically, um, kind of watching everything. And they're not, they don't have medical knowledge. And so they're not in the deeply enmeshed, getting the daily medical update from your hospital. Um, but they might be like a Facebook friend or somebody that you meet on the street or your neighbor, okay? And the, those people are highly interested in doing the right thing and in being, you know, kind of, you know, participating in the community, but they don't, there there's so much information coming at them that they don't know how to sift through the information. Um, and they also are looking for trusted sources of information and that's where I think um, you know, at least in terms of what i've started to do here in Illinois with our students and with a faculty and with health professionals all over is sort of think well. How can we provide people including clinicians, because a great example is people ask clinicians all the time questions about the vaccine, you know, and they're like, I don't know the answer, but will that make me, you know, well, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to say I don't know, because I'm worried that that person won't get Mm. vaccinated, Mm. when in fact, it's okay, and go look it up. And so a lot of times what we're trying to do is package the information in an accessible way, because the package insert is never going to be sufficient. Nobody's going to read the package insert. Um, And the vague information like a headline is not gonna be sufficient either. But if you can get information, the people aren't gonna to go to the scientific paper. How do you take the scientific paper, the package insert and, and use um, methods of health literacy to really reach people where they're at. So they can use pictures and text to say, okay, I can process this information and this makes sense to me and I can get behind this. And yes, I can now understand that, you know, um, you know, that there isn't um, a major risk if I get the COVID vaccine, you know, um, and that getting COVID is much riskier than getting the COVID vaccine given my age or my disability or this or that, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, so it's, a, it's sort of a risk management process, right? So, you know, in finance, we think about downside risk and upside potential. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, some of these concepts are quite difficult for general public to internalize, you know? So, so if I don't take the vaccine, what's the probability of me getting the disease? getting a severe disease getting i mean we have no long term data on this apparently yeah. um, uh, 1918 spanish flu um, million people that survived it had parkinsons or some cns disease later so we have no no long term data on covid yet it is just two years old and so it's always better not to get it um, and, and there's some misinformation out there also about you know just just go get it and then be done with it no it, it, you know we we have sufficient historical data that tells us that it's not a really good strategy so well, i would
1: push back on that you know because okay. i would say that um number one that the major risk of of get covid um you know the major reason to get the vaccine is to lower your rate of hospitalization and death or to lower your likelihood of being a vector of transmission to somebody mm-hmm. else who's on uh, who's at risk, and that last part is really important because um, you know obviously for young people I understand um, you know and pe- you know people who do not have um, who are not high risk you know because of their age or their comorbidities um, you know somebody could push back and say well why would I get this and and I would say we are a society and the issue is public health. And we have many vaccines that we have mandated because of the same reason. You know, um, you know many, many childhood vaccines have been mandated for similar reasons. Um, getting flu shots is a great thing. Because the other thing to keep in mind is also that um, there is incredible um, loss to the economy, as well as um, occupational issues. Um, you know absenteeism. If you get COVID, just like if you get the flu, right? Getting the flu shot is a very good thing because it prevents you from from you know not only having a poor consequence, but there is also that added benefit that you know you you might not pick up the flu. And so, so I think that the the real issue here is that you know there is a lot of under, there's, I understand people are going to be cautious. I can understand people being cautious. And I know many people waited, you know, and they were like, okay, I'm going to wait. But I think right now we're, we're past that point. And we really need to highlight that the goal here is to, you know, a lot of people are talking about normal, right? And, and, you know, it's like, well, if you're talking about, if you, if you're not really emphasizing vaccination as our path, then then you're possibly doing more harm, right? You need to be emphasizing vaccination as as, uh, our path because it is not normal for the hospitals to be filled up to the point where you're canceling surgeries or that you can't admit a patient to the ER. And I think that's another challenge is that it's very difficult for the public to see that. And so what you don't see is like hard to trust, right? And so can we do more to showcase The challenges that hospitals and healthcare workers face so that people see, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm healthy and I don't know why I care, you know, why it doesn't matter to me, but, but I actually, you know, it turns out I'm connected to everyone because I take a bus or I go to class or I work with people who have family members at home that are immunocompromised. And so I think the key is that a lot of people, um, in our society, this is a cultural issue, right? We tend to be a more, you know, self-centered society, I believe, than many other countries where there is more multi-generational homes, more understanding that you're going to look out for each other, more neighborhood cohesion and fa- that fabric. And so, I I think that's where I recently saw a paper that the 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 biggest predictors of vaccination were really around trust. You know, if your people trusted the government. Um, as well as sort of your um, um your you know outlook towards helping others, right? And so, so now we've if you look at those two, right, we are failing, right? People are not trusting uh the government, they're not trusting anyone right now. And um, we're not really, it's not enough to say I'm gonna help others. And and so of course we're in this mess. And so, so we really need to figure out how to how to reach people where they are. And um, and it's this is a very very tough problem. And so that's why I want to say I don't think that training alone is going to be sufficient, as you mentioned. Um, But these are just things to invest in that are really important for long term preparedness to really um, guard against the long term issues. Um, I do think there is a place um, for this is why there's a place for things like mandates to come in to raise those rates for other carrots and sticks to get people t- across the finish line to get vaccinated. Um, so I think those are just very, very important things. I mean, we have done this before. It's not like we didn't do it with polio or with uh, yeah. you know, MMR, right? Um, and it's not like it was easy. The Spanish flu, resolving the Spanish flu was not easy at all. The last surges actually took more lives, you know? And so, um, so you know, this whole idea that it's going to be one and done and everything's going to be great is is just, you know, kind of a, a fantasy land um, and and really what we need to do right now is go back to our tools, use the time that we have to get more people vaccinated and, and we need to align on that. And so right. that's really, really important. Um, and so, again, you know, one. Um, and that's where where I also think empowering people to be those trusted messengers in their communities is really critical. So how can health professionals partner with other people in the community, church leaders, others to be those trusted messengers? You know, um, you know the moms at the PTA, you know the school, you know people at the at the school, you know other public good areas where people can really highlight the importance of this for others.
0: So let me ask you this, you know, I sometimes think of this sort of an anecdotal cliff. Um, so, so we have eight billion people, so I can think of 7 billion around the world. I can think of about 200 million people in the U.S. They say, you know, Nancy didn't get vaccinated and got COVID. She was perfectly fine. And Joe got vaccinated and had a severe disease. Uh, yeah. So it is anecdotal data. Yeah. That ultimately filters into the general public.
1: Well, that's all uh, our life experience is a series of anecdotes, right? right? Um, but that's why it's important to really invest in that scientific communication, but also the transparency. So, you know, one thing that I, I've love seeing that hospitals have been doing, including my own, is creating infographics to say, of all the people that are hospitalized, you know, during the surge, you know, 80 to 90% of them are unvaccinated, you know, so that people could understand that not being vaccinated was the risk factor. You know, that was the major risk factor. Um, and and it provided transparency because if your local hospital was saying that, right, and then you saw that on your local news or you follow your local hospital or your, your doctor showed you that infographic, right, or your nurse, um, you know, people, you know, if, even though we have a crisis of trust, nurses are still the top most trusted profession for 20 years in a row with doctors second, right? Uh, Pharmacists are fourth. So it's not like the healthcare professions don't have any um, people. It's not like people don't trust their own healthcare um, professional that they know. And so that's where leveraging those personal relationships is really, really important as well. And I know many, many people who have been vaccinated. We don't talk about the successes, but because you don't see them, right? Many, many people have gotten vaccinated and many, many, many more people have gotten vaccinated who don't end up in the hospital and who don't end up dead, right? And so you have to really highlight those stories as well. um, So people understand how good the vaccine is and how safe it is because it does not have, um, you know, the side effect profile is fairly minimal. And so we've a lot of data now. And so I think that's where it's really, really important to, um, you know, to, 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 again, answer people's questions openly and honestly, not to lead with empathy. So not to shame them, you know, give them a platform to ask those questions. And, um, you know, one doctor who I respect a lot, who's done an amazing job at this is Dr. Kimberly Manning from Emory. And she's written about sort of how to, um, really create that sort of space, that safe space for people to ask questions. And she describes that many people have, um, talked to her and then are still unsure, you know, but then two weeks later they go get vaccinated. And I've had that same experience too, you know, and I, I've actually still reached out to people and said, Hey, you know, why haven't you gotten a booster? And the answer is like, Oh, I haven't had time to get, take time off of work, you know? So I think there still is access issues that Mm -hmm. we need to address, Um, And so, so I think people are very quick to lump all of the unvaccinated into a category of non-science believers, you know, when in fact, it's really a hodgepodge. And, um, you know, uh, another pediatrician who's really been doing amazing work, Dr. Rhea Boyd, has talked about how it's not the monolith of the unvaccinated, but really everyone has a different story and it's just about reaching them um, and making sure we make those connections. And similarly, you know, um, I think that's very true with parents and kids, you know, I can understand as a parent to small children, um, you know, and even, you know, I was breastfeeding at the time the the vaccine for healthcare workers came out. Um, you know, I did my research, you know, I didn't just like launch in to be like, I'm going to get a vaccine because I knew that pregnant women and breastfeeding women were not, and people pregnant and breastfeeding people were not included in those trials. So I didn't, um, you know, I had to do my research, I had to look and read, you know, and then I assembled all of it. And I made my decision, because shared decision making was really what was recommended at the time. Now we have much more data, much more data. And I would say it was a mistake not to include, um, you know, breastfeeding people and, and pregnant people in the beginning, because, because now we know, we have so much data that pregnancy is a risk, um, but we actually have people being turned away at vaccine centers and a lot of pregnant people who are concerned. We have a lot of infertility myths. Um, and that was a missed opportunity, right? We could have been very upfront with that group um, if we had that trial data. So anyway, I wanted to say that using that experience, I can empathize with people wanting more information, wanting to talk to more people. and. Um, my my concern is that people are losing patience there's no more patience for any of that you know it's just like okay well you're not you know you know well you're unvaccinated you know go better go to the back of the line and we can't we we as health professionals cannot do that we really need to partner with our patients and and understand that there's a legacy of distrust and um and also victims of disinformation you know and that and if we look at it that way to say that you know you know there are people that just trust the healthcare system for good reason there are people that have been swayed by disinformation because of this cognitive psychology you know how can we help them and that that would be the way that i would propose the question to our workforce right now
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense so i want to touch on a couple of other papers that you have so one is uh, Addressing medical misinformation in the patient clinician relationship.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was the um, one I mentioned at the top of the hour. Yeah, uh, it was that-
0: really, really interesting to me. You know, so yeah. I, I had a primary care physician for about thirty years. He just retired, and I, I'm trying to make retirement not valid. Okay. Um, and I can find somebody uh, who, um, who I trust, who I like. Um, because this person taken care of me for 30 years know, i can't i yeah. can't really substitute this person
1: yeah. so. somebody else so,
0: so so what is you know sort of the the, physici- the patient clinician relationship is a big
1: thing isn't it it is actually so my husband um david meltzer does a lot of work on improving continuity of care and um sort of fueled by the growth of the hospitalist movement. He directs the hospitalist program as well and um, has created a comprehensive care physician, a doctor that works with a team that sees you both inpatient and outpatient. So kind of a return to yesteryear, uh, the Marcus Welby type of doctor, but basically for the sickest patients, the ones that are coming in and out a lot, you know, because maybe not everybody needs that continuity, but these patients definitely need that continuity. Um, So I would definitely posit that some of this crisis of trust is probably due to the fragmentation of health, our healthcare system. And also, you know, even employ, you know, people switch jobs, right? And I just talked to somebody yesterday who wanted to see a primary care physician. And I was like, oh, I'll set you up with my friend. But I tried to set her up and her insurance didn't match. And then I had to go, you know, I had to help her try to get through. And she finally got somebody Um, that she could see, but you know, we've got narrower networks. So we've got a lot of barriers for people Mm. to make choices that make sense for them to see the doctor they know or the nurse practitioner they trust, you know, um, or somebody close to their house. And because of either these narrow networks, insurance issues, job changes, and you know, all this morass of the of the insurance industry, people can't make sense of it. It's like too difficult. And so they just go with the path of least resistance. And in some cases, that path of least resistance is to see nobody. And so we have a lot of people who are disenfranchised who could, who have access to care. They could see somebody, but they Mm do not invest in seeing a primary care physician. Um, And um, they also are, um, or they hop around, right? They just deal with the urgent issue of the day, um, either through telemed or through um, going to an ER. All of these things are wildly more expensive than investing in that relationship with a primary care physician, um, you know, or primary care physician's office, if you will. Um, And so I would definitely say that we have a long way to go. And so if anything, the pandemic has shown us that we could be doing a much greater job building trust. And so, so I think what you're really getting at is, you know, there's this problem with medical misinformation, right? There's also the question of who's best to dispel this m- medical misinformation. It's going right. to be a healthcare professional that you yeah. know and trust that Probably goes to the Gallup poll, right? If right. your doctor recommended the vaccine, according to the Kaiser poll, you're, you know, that's the most highest predictor that you're going to get the vaccine. And so, you know, and so I think this is the key, which is that um, there are a lot of people that, you know, again, there's a lot that gets talked about about the unvaccinated, but we are, we are not using all the tools that we could be using, you know, and, and, um, and so I think that's something that I, I really do feel very passionate about, which is that, you know, how can we align on this message and empower every clinician at every step of the way? Um, you know, to ask everybody. You know, so it's not just when you're in the ER or in the hospital, um, but you know, if you're seeing your pharmacist, you know, you're you're at, you're in a school nurse. You know, if you're anywhere, you can say, oh, you know, are you up to date on your uh, flu shot? Do you have your COVID vaccine? You know.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, so I want to finish up with uh, another paper: Uh, prevalence of personal attacks and sexual harassment of physicians on social media. This is not something I was aware of. So, this is particularly sort of personal for me. I have a daughter going through residency match process.
1: Say congratulations but i shouldn't say condolences until match day because it's a very stressful process so yes.
0: yeah it's completely stressful for everybody um and so um so you say women are more likely than men to report being harassed online and are yeah. more than twice as likely to experience online sexual harassment that is that makes a uh, good sense to me that's um that that sounds right so despite broad adoption of social media by medical professionals, there's limited information about physicians' experiences with harassment on social media. I've, uh, so this is not something that I was aware of, I have to say, beneath I, 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 I wasn't really aware of this. So, so so where are we on this on this
1: stage actually i do want to highlight this is a very interesting study because yeah. this study was actually conducted pre pandemic as was the misinformation piece that we wrote about patient clinician relationship that was written pre pandemic and um and then we realized in the pandemic we had this data you know um the misinformation piece had been accepted already and so you know we were like it was sort of like timely when it came out um but the interesting piece was we had collected this data, sort of sat on the shelf. And then in the middle of the pandemic, you know, we had worked with a med student and other faculty, we were like, we were watching these attacks in real time. And we had this data and I was like, guys, we got to analyze this and get this out. And because we realized that we had the data and we hadn't really, um, because everyone got sidetracked with the pandemic, you know, we hadn't you know, when, it, when we had a little bit of a breather, we went back to the data and um, analyzed it really quick and saw these rates. And so it was one out of four physicians reported being attacked. And this was before the vaccines came out. This is before COVID vaccines came out. It was, okay, this article came out January 3rd of, mm. um, you know, the of uh, 2021. So it's about a year ago, and I remember this because it was right around the vaccine. It was before the vaccine was made public, and healthcare workers were getting the vaccine. Um, and the most common reason for being attacked was advocacy around vaccines. Again, pre-pandemic right. data. So we knew we 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 had this like sinking feeling, like healthcare professionals are getting the vaccine first. We've been told to post on social media and, you know, talk about how great it is and the fact that we're like going first so that this is something we can do for our community. And and we had the data to know that people were going to be attacked, you know, and um and you know they weren't just attacked for vaccines in our study they were attacked for gun violence for mm-hmm. reproductive health a variety of other issues but the top one was vaccine and that really stuck out to me because of the timing of of our article and where we were at the time and then also because this is an underestimate so now if you look a year two years into the pandemic you know there's been a Nature article that's come out more of a poll to show that you know, you know, many physicians and scientists report uh, being attacked for COVID. So we ha- we're planning on doing a repeat with the with this lens around ha- during the pandemic. You know, have you been attacked? And we believe it's going to be incredibly high. That it'll be a lot higher. And the major problem for that is that when people get attacked or harassed, the um, normal, you know, human response is to retreat. That's just yeah. How it goes, right? Um, right. And this is no different from being attacked online versus being attacked at your school or your kid's school, right? Your, your kid is going to withdraw. You're going to withdraw. You're going to, you don't want to remove yourself from the situation. So um, when we think about women, um, in particular, who are removing themselves from the situation, it it leads to this concern that we're going to lose voices and we're going to lose them inequitably of health professionals who are vaccine advocates trying to put out good information, uh, but those voices are going to leave. And so attacks work, and that's the uh, the thing when um in the nature follow up when they ask scientists, you know um you know after you know if you've been attacked are you less likely to go on media? The answer was yes. And so then all of a sudden, again, you know, the attacks work. Like if you attack and troll people, they're not gonna wanna go into the media and, and talk about anything. And so, so then you worry that how does, that's another way that disinformation spreads unchecked. And the reason that's important is because the Surgeon General um, has declared misinformation a public health crisis this year. And in the report, it says, health professionals and healthcare institutions should use technology platforms like social media to address misinformation. But how would we do that if people feel that they're either ill-equipped to do so, right? which is why we need training, or they're gonna get attacked and there's nobody that's gonna come to their aid. That's gonna be the real challenge. And so we've done some work around how to support people through those experiences.
0: Yeah, so so let me ask you in conclusion, sort of a loaded question. so podcasters like me who typically don't know much <laughs> I would argue uh, when they put their opinions out there um, as if they know something and, and millions of people listen to it and form conclusions, should they be held accountable from a legal perspective? I mean it's a, it's a yeah. negative societal value yeah to that right?
1: Yeah, so this is a great question. Such a timely question, you know, with everything going on with uh, Spotify. Um, So here's what I would say, Um, you know, yes to free speech, right? But free free speech is not a license to spread harmful lies. Um, And, and that is really, really important. And so, um, you know, you know, there's, there's this very, um, you know, there's clearly a line. And so at the moment that you're really, you know, spreading complete lies and, and garbage about health misinformation, that's hurting people, you know, and that's contributing to deaths. um, I think that there does need to be some accountability. And remember that unlike, um, you know, unlike, um, you know, Spotify is a private company, right? I mean, these are private entities, you know, so, so I happen to be at a private university, right? There, those rules are governed very different than if I was at a public university, right? And so at a, and of course we, we defend free speech and expression, but at the same time, you know, you know, you can't spread pornography either on campus, you know, you can't, you know, you can't slander somebody you know um without facing their rules Rules there are rules about what you can say and what you can't say now can you have an opinion sure but at the point that you're really using these very large platforms to spread disinformation and they've shown that um anti-vaccination posts and social media for example majority of them can be traced to 12 very prolific accounts and mm-hmm. these accounts you know do what's called astroturfing you know they kind of feed a lot of other accounts you know and bots and things like that i think we have to understand that there is a coordinated information war going on mm-hmm. and um and and that that also needs that that information war needs safeguards and levers to prevent harmful information from spreading and it's just like you would put warnings on social media or sanction people for um, spreading you know bad information about something you know it's it's incredibly damaging and so so i do agree there has to be some consequence in line and especially for companies that are sort of walking the line saying that they you know that they like they've declared some content, you know, already as um, you know inappropriate. Well then, you know, how is it how is it appropriate to spread lies about about healthcare, um, you know, about known healthcare facts, you know?
0: Yeah, I, I know that you have to go um, so the the issue science against general public, I think in science we accept information is going to change. It appears to me sort of a philosophical uh, issue with general public, which is, once I get a piece of information, I assume that it's not going to change. But then in science, information always changes, right? <laughs> yeah. so, so how do we, from a you know you are you are in a you know sort of edu- educator. Um,
1: I see this right uh, now. I'm going to be really honest. There are a lot of people that have a fixed mindset yeah and the idea the pandemic and science requires agility and a growth mindset the idea that i'm going to learn you know there is going to be something that somebody's going to teach me that will allow me to change my attitude i think this is where we go back to that whole our brains don't like uncertainty we just like yes or no you know um right. And we're all fatigued, right? Again, this is also playing on top of fatigue and burnout, you know, for not just healthcare workers, but the public. The public is burned out as well from COVID. <laughs> yeah. And that's where that's where we're struggling, right? Because in March of 2020, the public wasn't burned out. They were like doing the cheers and, you know, being like, we're staying home, you know, doing everything we can. No- nobody's doing that right now, right? Because it's right. everyone's like, I'm done with COVID. Let's move on with our life. <laughs> well, I got vaccinated and boosted. Why can't I move on? Yeah. And... And there are a lot of healthcare workers that are like, no, you can't move on. You know, life is horrible, you know, and, and the truth is somewhere in the middle, right. Mm -hmm. And that somewhere in the middle is we need to look at the rates and we need to, to stick to the rate for when to decide to off ramp a certain mitigation, you know, like for example, masking, you know, and, um, and it might be too soon now, but there will come a day where we can off-ramp and here's the off-ramp and here's the guide. And the challenge is that, um, well, number one, I will say, many places don't even have mitigation right now because they're just going by a very, they're not following the science anyway. Um, but for places that are, I think we do need to hold people's hands to let them know that here is are the benchmarks where we know that we've crossed over into low circulating virus, the metrics are low, the case counts are low, hospitals are doing well. And so I do believe that this is where we can use data and metrics, but also the empathic communication to meet people halfway. I I know that some healthcare workers will take issue with that because I think there's a lot of trauma in our workforce also, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of fear. Um, But we can support people through that. And and we've got to come up with a way to say, Let's figure out a way where we can, you know, remove a restriction where we can, but partner together so we know when we have to put it back in place, if we have to put it back in place. That's really the challenge. A lot of healthcare workers, like I've I've talked to people and they're like, well, if we remove that, no one will ever want it back again. And really? I was like, that's not the right way to to go about this, right? Because people are why you know, why we have to trust that people will trust us to guide them. And, um, and so I think that's where we're running into a little bit of challenges right now, both sides are very fatigued. And it's never a good thing. When the healthcare workforce is pitted against the public, we should be avoiding that at all costs. And so we've got to meet in the middle and find a halfway. Um, And, and, And it's got to be dictated by things that make sense, you know, and um, and I have I don't see a lot of those discussions happening. I see a lot of um, but I have seen some public health officials be very, um, you know, highlight the metrics by which when we can move forward, you know, and of course, there will be fear. There will be fear on both sides. Um, But we've got to we've got to and we've got to figure out how do we use those metrics to ensure safety of those that need it most, you know, disabled, immunocompromised, you know, people who are facing structural inequities. Um, but but we also can't be in a, um, you know, we're not going to be in this stage forever. And, and that's where I go back to this other thing, which is vaccination rate is an important metric, right? So I do want to highlight that many times people are looking at cases, and I'm going to say, Have we vaccinated enough people so we won't get into the problem that we had before? We see other countries that have vaccinated um, a lot of people, much more people than we have with that trust. They're they're able to get to a better place. Um, We have not been. And so we have to get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is not the mitigation. Uh, The root of the problem is that we don't have enough vaccination. That is really, really the key.
0: Yeah, so, so perhaps you can come back and I would love to have yeah. sort of a global policy sort of a debate, um, but I think we, we ran out of time today. No
1: uh, well, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to go into. So.
0: Excellent. Yeah, thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay,
1: really thank it. you. Yep, great. Thank you. Thank you.